earlier progressively studying through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We're currently in chapter 10 at verse 17, where the witnesses uh, who Jesus sent to the surrounding cities in Judea, the 70 witnesses, are now returning. Uh, In the last two weeks, we observed how... um, Jesus made remarks concerning those cities that will receive him, those homes and cities who will receive him, and those homes and cities who will not receive him, who refuse to. Uh, those, those homes and cities who receive Jesus re- receive from him a commendation. If you remember from last week, those cities who reject Jesus receive a condemnation. And in our passage today, uh, the 70 having now returned provide their report to Jesus. Uh, Let me begin by reading that passage, beginning in verse 17. The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Turning to the disciples, Jesus said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. Well, the first obvious observation is, of course, the 70 return rejoicing, right? They are rejoicing as they come back to Jesus. After what was potentially weeks of witnessing, there were results that caused them to rejoice. It's interesting that immediately they point to the miraculous, right? Always to the miraculous first, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Uh, Of course, that really shouldn't have been a huge surprise to them. We remember when Jesus sent out the disciples at the beginning of chapter 9, just one chapter ago, that he delegated 12 to go out. Chapter 9, verse 1, and gave them, delegated to them, all power over demons and diseases. If you recall, we also noted that since Jesus specifically delegated that power to the twelve, that performing such a miracle wasn't a latent power, latent ability that every Christian possesses. Jesus had to delegate to them that authority. They didn't have it before he delegated it to them. Um, He had to give it to them. We see the very same thing here when you look at at verse 19 of chapter 10 where Jesus tells the 70, I gave you that authority. So, So the power to cast out demons really shouldn't have surprised them that much. And although I've never met anyone whom Jesus personally delegated this power, 
Spiritual warfare, according to Ephesians chapter 6, is, is still a very real part of the Christian experience. That's why we're told to put on the whole armor of God. But spiritual battle doesn't seem to be something that, that Christians rejoice over. It's not something they take pride in. It's not something to be celebrated that there's spiritual warfare going on there. Jesus is certainly not surprised at their success himself, for he tells them, verse 18, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. The English Standard Version perhaps offers a better rendering. It reads, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. It can be interpreted and translated in the past tense. It's better understood for us in the past tense. We all know Satan's fall from heaven was in the past. It occurred before even Adam's fall. And Jesus is suggesting, I was watching as that happened. I was watching him fall. And that reference to lightning isn't, isn't drawing our attention to uh, a brightness of the lightning, but the flash of lightning, the quickness of lightning, how quickly something happens. It describes how quickly demonic strongholds and demons fall at the word of God. It's like lightning. Denotes speed. Back in school, high school, grade school, we'd often tell our friends, right, when they'd run fast, you run like lightning. Talking about speed here. Uh, but it never gives us, Scripture never gives us any indication that God rejoiced over Satan's fall. You understand where I'm coming from? Uh, the Bible does, however, repeatedly affirm that the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, was present in heaven along with the Father and along with the Holy Spirit when that fall occurred. That was even before creation. Jesus says, I saw it. I saw it. Before the foundation of the world, I saw it. It isn't a mystical statement. We, we think to ourselves, he saw Jesus, uh, Satan fall like lightning. We think we're trying to find some hidden meaning. Something hidden. No, verse 18 is a historical statement, folks. It's a historical statement that Jesus saw Satan fall like lightning. That quick. Affirms his eternality. And then in verse 19, Behold, I have given you authority. Again, he delegated to these 70. I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Now folks, you all look real intelligent here, and I'm not, not exaggerating. You all look like very intelligent people. Is Jesus here in context? Think about it for a moment. Is he talking about literal scorpions and serpents? Say no. Say no. Please. Or is Jesus using serpents and scorpions to describe the treacherous activities of demonic forces? Yes. Yes, that's what he's talking about here. When Jesus gives authority over serpents and scorpions and over all power of the enemy um, so that none of those demonic forces can injure you, he's not implying that, that Christians should prove their spirituality somehow by handling snakes across the aisles on Sunday, folks. That can be very dangerous to your health, by the way. That's not what he is talking about in this passage. Uh, that, that is a very, let me just say, poor 
interpretation of this passage. That's not what Jesus is talking about. That interpretation was never intended by God. Instead, what Jesus is stating is that demonic forces have no authority over the Christian. No authority over us. Does Satan, even the prince of demons, the most powerful of demons who led the rebellion against God in heaven, does he exercise inherent dominion over you? Satan. No, no. James 4 verse 7 says simply, resist the devil and he will flee from you, right? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Demons don't have inherent power over us. But when Jesus says nothing will injure you, he's, he's not suggesting that we can't be physically injured either. What he's saying is that we are spiritually preserved. In Romans 8 verse 39, the Apostle Paul is convinced, so for that reason I am convinced, that neither death nor life nor angels, that would be fallen angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, that would be powers of darkness, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So our battle against the, the world forces of darkness, of evil, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, uh, wickedness in the heavenly places, that's where we're told in Ephesians 6 to put on the whole armor of God. That battle, it's very real. But they have no power, those demonic forces, to separate us from the love of Christ. Neither Satan nor his angels may deal a mortal blow to your salvation. They, they can't injure you in that sense. They can't injure your relationship with Christ. Does that suggest that we play with them? No. No, no more than we handle rattlesnakes in service, which is also hazardous. We don't play with demons. We don't mess around with them, uh, though they can't strike a mortal blow to our salvation. Folks, they can sure leave a mark. They can surely leave a mark. Um, This is why Peter warns us in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter says the same thing as James. But resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You know, God, he may test you. He may decide to test you the way that he tested Job or in a manner like he tested Job. And just as the Apostle John in the book of Revelation was writing the seven churches, he prepared that church that was in Smyrna, and he told them, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for ten days. He says, But be faithful until death, and I will give you The crown of life. Be faithful. Be on the alert. Resist the devil. So so don't leave here today with the impression that Satan and his angels, that through powers and principalities, that, that they can't physically torment a Christian. If God permits. This verse is not suggesting that. Um, the apostles, by the way, who also suffered 
even to the point of death, would dispute that notion. Paul was given a thorn, a messenger of Satan to keep him humble, but demonic forces can never separate us from the love of Christ. But what I do believe Jesus is teaching his disciples here. It's that demonic warfare isn't something to be celebrated. It isn't something to take pride in. It's not a cause uh, for us to be boastful. Apparently it wasn't even an appropriate reason to rejoice from what we see with Jesus here. Spiritual warfare, it's actually really serious business. Very serious business. That's why Scripture describes it as a war. It's a war. So in verse 20, Jesus tells them this, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Now salvation, that's something to rejoice in, says Christ. For, for the 70, there appeared to be little or no emphasis on that when they returned to give their report people who had received Christ during their mission, although that was the reason that they were sent out. That's the entire reason they were sent. But they were mesmerized by the the supernatural fact that they were able to cast out a few demons, a power Jesus delegated to them for that mission. But nowhere delegates to us. Does anyone here had Jesus delegate to them all power over demons and diseases? Unlikely. He hasn't come back from heaven. He's seated at the Father's throne. He will return again next time in power and in glory. Um, And the New Testament epistles that teach the church, the pastoral epistles, Paul's writings, Peter and James, uh, those are the the writings that instruct us on spiritual warfare, put on the whole armor of God, take the sword of the Spirit that Gerald mentioned earlier that we're teaching the children, Um, all of this gear that we have, they never make any mention, not even a mention of exorcisms. Isn't that interesting? To go into battle and to do warfare and, and to put on the whole armor of God, the helmet of salvation... Take with you the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. No instructions at all to cast spirits from your kitchen cabinets or to cleanse haunted houses. All this instruction for the church. All that we need as Christians and no mention of those types of things. Pretty remarkable when you think about it. Rather, our instruction in spiritual warfare uh, and the emphasis that we are given in the Bible is about Scripture, memorizing Scripture. That's the Awana program. Prayer, preaching and teaching the Word, uh, the disciplines of living a holy and righteous life and resisting the devil and the influences of the devil so that he flees from us. That's our sanctification, our growing in Christ-likeness, our holiness. But enough on spiritual warfare. Let's, let's get to the real reason that Jesus says we should rejoice. He says, don't rejoice that the spirits are subjected to you. Instead, rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. In heaven. Recorded in heaven means that the names are written down in the Lamb's book of life. 
which qualifies them, those 70, those other followers of Christ, and all of us who are Christians to enter heaven, to enter the new Jerusalem, described in Revelation 21, verse 22. Listen for just a moment and, and, and consider yourselves whether this is a reason to rejoice or not. Revelation 21 and 22, you should read it for yourself what the New Jerusalem is like at your next opportunity. The Apostle John describes the vision he was given of the New Jerusalem like this. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third I can't even pronounce. Jewels, emeralds. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, we are told. Each of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. In it there is a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants, that's us, will serve Him. They will see His face. Revelation 21 verse 25 says that the gates of the city will never close. Who's going to be allowed to enter? Who's going to be able to enter this place? It says nothing unclean. No one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's better than any passport I've ever seen. Names written in the Lamb's book of life. For those who have trusted in Christ, who put their faith in Jesus, their names are recorded in the book. They're recorded in heaven. Jesus says, rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And I wonder then, what expression Jesus had on his face. As he prayed in verse 21. What type of voice think about that for a moment what type of voice did he use to utter these words i have to, I have to imagine he was smiling when i think about this just a pleasant smile a joyful rejoicing was he laughing possibly laughing because we were told at that very time jesus rejoiced greatly in the holy spirit i don't know anyone who could rejoice greatly in the holy spirit without some laughing without some smiling, without some joy. Uh, so I imagine a smile on his face and the enthusiasm that rises from his voice as I read to you the content of this prayer. Listen to this. Jesus said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. That's us, infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows who is the Son except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills, wills to reveal Him. And we're told there was this great rejoicing. 
as the Holy, uh, as in the Holy Spirit now, Jesus is praying to his Father. Folks, what we're witnessing here in verses, um, in these verses, it's an it's an intra-trinitarian communion. You follow me? Take a look at that for a moment. An intra-trinitarian communion. It's between the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Son. They're rejoicing with one another through the words spoken by Christ. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all present in this passage. They are all God. They are three in one. Each is a person of the Holy Trinity. Each are referred to as God in Scripture. All three are seen as eternal in the Bible. Jesus was present in heaven with the Father and with the Spirit even when Satan fell. They were all existent before time began. They're all present today. They will continue to be present and existent uh, beyond the culmination of human time. And we find them present in this passage, folks. And they are rejoicing. They are rejoicing together. Um, Any notion of modalism, if you've ever heard of that term, modalism, um, that would be where God morphs from the Old Testament father into the life of Christ being the Son, and then at the day of Pentecost morphs again into the Holy Spirit. Um, That's completely incompatible with Holy Scripture. You can't make that fit. Um, That's a false concept proposed by many today. The true Christian church has always affirmed what Scripture teaches, that the three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are co-eternal, they're co-existent with one another. Christians refer to this wonder that's difficult to even comprehend. We refer to this wonder as the Trinity. Alright? But if you're a new believer or a visitor today and... and, uh, you're told at some point or another that the word Trinity never appears in the Bible. You might be told that by someone. Don't worry. Christians have never claimed that the word Trinity appears in the Bible. It surely does not. Trinity is a word that Christians have used for centuries to describe what is clearly evident in the Bible. What is clearly seen in the Bible. That the Father is God, that the Holy Spirit is God, and that the Son is God. All three are personalities of God, have, have and always will uh, exist in perfect unity. They coexist in harmony, each sharing the same divine nature. They are continually in perfect harmony with one another. They are indignant towards the same things. They desire the same thing, the glory of Christ. They all receive worship as God, and here they are rejoicing over the same thing. They're rejoicing together. What is it that they're rejoicing over? They're rejoicing that Christians' names are written and recorded in heaven. We need only to look to the words of Christ. They're rejoicing over these names of the people that will be worshiping throughout eternity, that they'll be worshiping Jesus. Christ has invited you to do the same, to worship Him in the Spirit They're rejoicing that God the Father has sovereignly sovereignly revealed the identity of the Son to spiritual infants. That means people people like us. Infants, we've studied this uh, in the past in Luke, infants doesn't refer 
to babies in this context. It's talking about people who are completely dependent on their father. Remember we studied that? An infant is completely dependent on the father to do something for them. That's what we're talking about here. Uh, in contrast to that, Jesus says that they've, the minds of the wise and the intelligent have been blinded. That's the spiritually arrogant. Don't need any help. Already know everything. But they don't even know the father. The infants are dependent on the father. Uh, listen to what 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26 reminds us as Christians. Considering... Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Who has God chosen? James asked that question. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who loved him? Oh, he did. The poor, the despised, the weak. Things that the world nullifies. Take a look around, folks. Look at us. Look at us. Are there many of us here that would be uh, admired by the world, to be revered by the world? No. Are, are there many of us who are stunningly attractive? Many of us who are exceedingly rich? Many of us who are celebrities or Instagram models or debaters of the age, no. No, not many. Scripture says that God has hidden the truths about Christ from the wise and from the intelligent and that he has revealed them to infants. We who depend upon the Father. If you've been with us recently again, infants are those who are completely dependent. We, we didn't come you go into these passages, we didn't come to faith in Christ, to an understanding of the knowledge of Christ and our redemption because we're incredibly wise, because we're just so smart. That's not how we came to that determination. We didn't earn our way into heaven because we've got so much money to throw around and we're exceedingly rich in the world. Jesus says the Father found it pleasing to reveal His Son to us through grace. He revealed the Son to us. Us. Again, take a look around. Us. I had an uh, Awana child ask me on Friday night, what is grace? What is grace? And I told him grace describes the salvation that God has given us free of charge. It's unearned. It's unmerited favor of God. Uh, undeserved by us. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. That's grace. That's grace. How did we become Christians? Through being wise and intelligent, smarter than our neighbors? Better looking, getting more Facebook likes? Earning and achieving more money and status? No. 
Most of us in the world are poor. We're unlearned. We're unsightly. But to demonstrate His great mercy, God revealed His Son to us, the carpenters and the truck drivers and the housewives and the assistants, the mothers, the mechanics amongst us. God found it pleasing to love us. During our scripture reading, I read John chapter 6, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. That's those who were defecting from him, I explained earlier. All that the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus says, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I will raise it up on the last day. Again, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. For this is the will of my Father, says Jesus, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and my I myself will raise him up on the last day. Mm. Is that something to be happy over? <sighs> on the day of Pentecost and after, the twelve apostles were described by the wise and intelligent of their age. They're described as unlearned Galileans. Fishermen. They're just fishermen. Most of them. In Acts 4, Peter and John were viewed as uneducated and untrained men. Yeah, they were also recognized as having been with Jesus. Acts 4, verse 13. Are you beginning to figure it out? That when it comes to Jesus, that we didn't just figure it out, but that he showered us with his grace for his glory. Jesus assured the twelve those fishermen, those unlearned and uneducated Galileans. You didn't choose me. I chose you. Folks, our names are written in his book. They are recorded in heaven from before the foundation of the world. For this reason, Jesus is laughing. He's rejoicing. He is smiling as he communes with the Father in the Spirit. And he invites everyone here to come in and join in that communion with him.